listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Todd Urey, and it's This Week in Pharmacy. What do you know? Another week uh, flying by. Does anybody else think that 2024 is going just a little too fast? It's almost March already. We're preparing for the Profit Summit Live, Pharmacy Profit Summit Live conference in Dallas, Texas on March 10th. That's put out by uh, Pharmacy 50, three times Pharmacy 50 winner, um, voted by her peers, Dr. Lisa Fast. So proud of what she's done for community pharmacy and helping them to thrive and come up with ways of of staying alive and staying in business and how crucial that is for your communities. Hey, pharmacists out there and technicians out there, we can tell you how frustrating of a week I, I'm sure that you're having based on so many things that are going on. I'm not going to um, uh, putz around. We're going to jump right into this. Uh, we're going to talk about some interesting news that just came out today uh, based on the closures. And these closures continue to happen across the nation. And like I said, uh, people like uh, Lisa Fast is out there teaching community pharmacies to stay in business. Um, but this uh, news comes out of the Seattle Times. Uh, Washington State pharmacies close in record numbers as Bartell Drugs, Rite Aid, um, all are closing. And this is not good for public health. It says a record number of Washington State pharmacies shut down last year, driven by the string of Bartell and, uh, drugs and, and Rite Aid closures in Seattle area. About 60 pharmacies closed in 2023, which is twice as many closures as record uh, recorded the previous year, according to the Seattle Times analysis of the Department of Health and data on active closed pharmacies. Once again, um, not good for our communities. We know the reason, uh, reasons being how things are being paid for. That's why PBM reform is so important. If you're listening to the show today, please make it your goal this coming week to write a letter, not a form letter, because I've, I've talked to some politicians and they say that emails and um, inform letter, inform letters aren't as good. I would handwrite a letter and send it to them. I know that's a lot of work in you, but just tell them in short sentence, my name is blank, I am a pharmacist or I am a technician, and I'd like to um, support PBM reform on our state. It's causing us to have issues, and you could even give references. Um, these politicians that are out there, the majority of those politicians don't understand PBM reform. They don't understand how PBMs work. But as you know, just from the national news, this just came out uh, February 23rd uh, today at 6 a.m. with the closings. All right, let's talk about other things happening. Just hours ago, we found out about a cyber attack on health tech firms crippling the United States military pharmacies worldwide. However, if you keep going through the news, you'll see on the Wall Street Journal, hospitals and pharmacies reeling after Change Healthcare got attacked, a cyber attack. And then over at Fox Business News, it says pharmacies nationwide 
uh, face delays as healthcare tech companies report cyber attacks. Goodness gracious. And we all experienced this uh, cyber attack. And obviously, uh, that was a big deal. Uh, my cell phone, my mobile phone was down, um, as a lot of uh, people's mobile phones were down. It's kind of a scary trend, if you ask me. I mean, goodness gracious, cyber attacks rising and what that means for um, healthcare, what that means for daily living, that what that means for banking, electricity grids. Um, I don't know if I need to give a shout out to the boomers out there and the generation Xers out there like me um, who lived without all of this technology for so long. But our society has become so integrated and so necessary. Um, you know, we all hate the fax machine. We'd like to see it go away, but maybe it's a good backup for right now in order to get claims processed and get our patients uh, cared for. Um, but this is something that is of major concern. And this week in pharmacy, we wanted to cover it um, before we get into today's tech-oriented delivery. As you saw in the um, in the artwork of this episode, this is about technology. This is about robots in health system pharmacy. Um, this is also about um, uh, digital health. So um, with uh, that in mind, I just want to touch on Diligent Robots, uh, Andrea Thomas, Thomas um, to, I'm sorry, Andrea Tomaz, um, she's the CEO and, and co-founder of Diligent Robots. We're going to be talking to her about Moxie, which is a robot that goes throughout uh, different um, uh, different sectors of hospitals to deliver medications, but also used for uh, security. And before um, we get into that, I just also want to give a shout out to all of the pharmacists and all of the technicians getting ready for the APHA, the American Pharmacists Association 2024. If you're going to the conference, please reach out to Pharmacy Podcast. We will be inside the APHA's booth. We'll be running their uh, podcast, which is called Locked on Pharmacy. If you have something to say, if you have something to talk about, if you want to make a point, if it's political, if it's uh, something about a procedure, if it's medication management, medication safety, technology, anything, I don't care. Please reach out to us to get you scheduled. Uh, our interviews are uh, filling up fast at the APHA. But like I said, we want to involve you um, and we want to hear from more of you uh, that are out there. All right. Without further delay, I want to get into today's um, amazing guest. Um, and I want to talk about technology in healthcare, technology in our hospital systems. Please listen to these interviews and then give us some feedback, how you think um, tech, how you think robotics are going to impact your positions and your jobs and your effectiveness in caring for patients. We care about you and I'll be back in just a moment after this interview. Hey, and on this week in pharmacy, a special technology episode, the integration of robots into different industries is nothing new. I mean, as far back as the 1960s, many manufacturing environments saw the first deployment of robotic arms and cars being put together by massive amount of uh, technology in order to minimize these repetitive tasks while simultaneously freeing up human workforce to focus on something else, healthcare is being infused by robotics and technology. And the Pharmacy Podcast Network has always been curious as to how uh, robots, robotics, artificial intelligence 
will impact um, the future of healthcare and more importantly, pharmacy care and where hospital systems are using robotics. This is important. I have a special guest from Diligent Robotics, uh, Andrea um, Tomas uh, is here with us. Andrea, I'm so excited to have you here on This Week in Pharmacy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Right out of the gate, I want you to tell us about uh, Diligent Robots and yourself. And um, I have a bunch of questions. And if you're uh, viewing us on YouTube, you'll be able to see some of the actual examples of Moxie. But if you don't have um, access, if you're not watching us, if you're driving, you shouldn't be watching anything. Keep your hands on your on your steering wheel. But um, go to diligentrobots.com. It will be in the show notes. But once again, diligentrobots.com. All right. So tell us about your background and, and how you got into robotics, because what a fascinating part of our healthcare uh, technology. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, Andrew Tomas, co-founder of Diligent Robotics. We founded the company in 2018. Um, before that, I was a professor of robotics at UT Austin and really have uh, co-founded the company with one of my PhD students. And our passion has always been you know, putting robots right next to people and, and figuring out ways that they can work together and team together. So we like to say that we build robot teammates. And um, one of the things that you know, we were excited about when we launched Diligent was finding a space and a, a, a team structure that really needed robots to augment their work. And when we started to investigate and learn more about the interworkings of hospitals, it became very apparent that there are way too many people in hospitals running around and physically moving things from one place to another. And, and that's really where the idea of Moxie robots came to be. So our, this is our robot Moxie. Moxie can travel autonomously throughout a hospital and has locked storage containers that you have to use your staff badge to, um, to unlock the the drawers there and you know we can transport things from one place to another so one of the biggest things that moxie is asked to transport across all of our um hospitals that we're deployed in is medications from pharmacy and that's either you know from pharmacy directly to nursing units or you know sometimes we'll do um transports from a main pharmacy to satellite pharmacies and you know, we're just really excited about the work that we're able to take on with robots because that means that you know pharmacists and pharmacy techs are staying in the pharmacy and doing their actual licensed work so i always think of the um, pharmacy embedded in our hospital systems as a central point for nurses physicians specialists uh, interns candy stripers uh, to engage and and be part of uh, delivery, bedside, um, follow-up, and how pharmacists are becoming less um, task-based and much more patient treatment-based, as well as bedside-based, which is very exciting, to follow up from what the physician kind of put into place. And then what happens afterwards is is so important when the when the patient goes home. But tell me about that realization of robotics. When did you realize that um, that robotics would be helpful to pharmacists specifically? Yeah, so uh, we did, so we, I said we launched the company in 2018 and we we didn't 
want to come into a hospital environment as a, as roboticists and say, well, we know exactly how you should implement robots. Like here's what robots do in manufacturing or in factories. And there we go. So we're just going to turn the hospital into a factory. Uh, so we knew that was not the right way. And, you know, the, the brand of robotics that I um, studied for a number of years and, and, and taught is called human robot interaction. So it's really about taking a look at a current team of people and then really understanding if we add automation, we add robots to this team of people, like how can we redesign that workforce or redesign that workflow and, and kind of optimize for the human robot team. So uh, to take that perspective in the first year and a half that we uh, launched the company, we built a single robot. We had one prototype and um, looked a lot like the, the robot that you see out there, to the, the Moxie that you see today, um, but on the insides was you know completely different. And um, we took that robot to four different hospitals across Texas and we found amazing kind of innovative um, nursing partners mostly who let us um, deploy our robot and a team of people, researchers for like six weeks and we would just embed ourselves with that nursing team. It was usually just a single department in um, a, a medical surgical unit. So like a med surge unit in a hospital, we're embedded and we're just asking those nursing teams like, what do you need? Like what, what would be helpful? Like what kind of materials management? And very, very like soon after we started, almost every one of those leaders asked us about getting medications. But then as soon as we started to talk to pharmacy directors, like, well, what would it mean for this robot to carry medications? Well, you know, it would have to be locked for sure. And it, we would need to have some compliance around who's loading and unloading the robot. And so, you know, all of those um, early discoveries are really what led us to put some of the, the product features in place that now allow uh, Moxie to be integrated into pharmacy and nursing workflows. But it was really those early days of just asking, like, what do you need? Like, what do you really need uh, to have transported around? And you know, the, the question we usually start with is like, what takes your pharmacy techs away from the pharmacy? Like, when are they having to like walk across the building and why? And so we dig into that workflow and, and, and really you know, ask the questions of like, what would it take to automate it? So as someone who is uh, to use your word diligent about uh, delivering good information month after month day after day we put out six podcasts per week i'm always going back to our sponsors and our clients to say what's the most important thing to you to amplify your messaging and to push this the value of what we do forward uh, diligent robots has ha has the exact same challenge you have to prove to the people that are in charge of budgets, that this is worth an investment based on the size of the hospital, based on the corridors. Some of our hospitals are legacy built back in the you know 50s and 60s, and they're still using these organizations, but I've seen them lay down tracks. I've seen them lay down like QR codes for, um, for identification of different areas. So how do you convince or how do you propose to a to a pharmacy inside and or a hospital system overall that this is a good investment? Yeah, great question. Well, um, so there's a couple parts of uh, what you're what you're talking about there that I think are really interesting. So first is the ease of implementation. So you're talking about some of the older ways that robots were installed into um, kind of the back 
hallways of, of, uh, hospitals was through, you know, tracks and, um, very physical things that you had to install in the environment. Um, modern day robots don't need that. And so we're excited to be bringing this kind of next generation of robotics and AI into the hospital space. So you don't have to lay down any, anything in the physical environment to allow the robot to navigate. Um, you know, there's LIDAR uh, sensors on the robot. And in the first couple of days of after shipment, you, uh, you, you would see some of our implementation team driving the robots around with PlayStation controllers. And you know, basically you demonstrate to the robots everywhere that they're gonna need to work. And so we call this learning from demonstration. And um, after being demonstrated all of the places in the hospital that the robot might need to go, that builds up a map. And now you can send the robot from point A to point B anywhere. And, and so then um, you just have to drop down like physical pins like you would on a Google map where you're telling uh, a friend how to get from one point to another. Um, we, that's, that's exactly how Moxie's maps work. And so the clinical teams can just say, well, I want to be able to go from pharmacy. And when, when Moxie comes to pharmacy, this would be the, a great place to stop. And you know, then you can talk about all the other places that 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 Moxie needs to go. So typically, when a hospital system is thinking about automation, it is you know they're coming to us with a desire to optimize their workforce and you know augment their workforce and think about um, you know the the term that gets used a lot um, and and when we first were starting the company, the term that we were hearing a lot was called you know, getting people to perform at the top of their license. So you have you know, pharmacists, you have pharmacy techs, you have ever, a lot of people who've gone through a lot of education and training and certification to work in that pharmacy. And so the hospital leadership is often looking at, well, you know, we're short staffed, yeah. but we, and, and also the staff that we do have, we're not using optimally. And they're coming to us to say, you know, how can we make sure that the people that we have on staff are working at the top of their license and, you know, delivering medications with your, with your feet is not working at the top of your license. So we really help to, um, to take that little piece of the transport task off of the, off of the plate. Um, in terms of the value that we're creating, you know, we were, we can really show that. Um, in the first week, month uh, of, of utilization, because everything that the robot does is tracked. And we can kind of demonstrate that, look, this would have been, you know, 4 million steps that, that your, your team teams would have taken in order to get all these deliveries done. That is really cool. I think of when I, when I go from one point to the next, especially when I'm traveling, immediately I turn on the GPS. I'm able to see exactly the turns and everything that what I need to do. It also gives me how long it's going to take me to get there. Sometimes um, I use that as a little side challenge to see if I can get there faster. But, but in, in the case of Moxie, is one department to the next, especially if coming from the pharmacy, we're delivering to a nursing station. Is there any metrics live metrics at the time where a, where a nurse could look at her iPad or her phone and see where Moxie is, how far away they are from delivering the meds. 
Uh, so we don't have like a a map of the hospital. You don't you don't see the little Moxie robots like your uh, you know Uber cars or something yet. Uh, we'd love to get there, but um, it is a common request. I think people are, are, are would love to to see that. But it's more like you see on the, the there's a kiosk that we can put um, at every nursing station or every every place that's going to be receiving Moxie deliveries, and that's where you can see the current activity. You can see. Um, and so on your task, it would show, you know, Moxie is traveling to the pharmacy. Moxie is traveling to your unit. So you would see um, a little bit more like some of the food delivery apps do where you can see like, oh, there your driver is heading to pick up your food at the restaurant. Okay, now your driver is heading to you. Right. So that's the level of detail that we have on the task. Let's talk about strategic initiatives. What are what are some of those initiatives that you are getting feedback from pharmacy departments and and getting an, an idea of how best to implement and or make changes to what Moxie does for them? Yeah, we've really learned a lot about some of the, the ways that pharmacy directors are in hospitals are trying to I think you know back to what you're saying, it's it's no longer just, you know, fulfilling medications, but really trying to be I think you know, pharmacy is really part of that care team that's focused on the patient, the, the quality of patient care, and what can we do to increase the quality of that patient care. Um, so there's two two kind of bigger initiatives that we've seen um, a number of different a number of our different hospital partners are are working on the same thing around. You know, one is discharge medications. So. You know, everybody's been there. If you're in the hospital or if you're with a loved one in a hospital and you've got your discharge orders from the, you know, today's going to be the day that we're going to get discharged. And, you know, there's like a number of things that have to happen. And one of the biggest things that has to happen is, is if you're getting medication from the pharmacy that you're taking home, you know, waiting for those discharge medications to get delivered to you and getting, getting the education that you need is like one of the biggest kind of sign off things for being able to be discharged. And, um, that is, uh, a lot of, a lot of hospitals are implementing with their pharmacies, uh, what's commonly called a meds to beds program. So, you know, where you're really trying to focus on that, Hey, as soon as a discharge medication is ordered, let's really focus on like decreasing that time that we get that, you know, medication to the bedside so that we can make sure to get people discharged in a timely manner. Um, what we've learned is that there's been even when when there's a strategic initiative to say like yes we want to implement a meds to beds program when the pharmacy department and the nursing departments kind of sit down and actually think about the operational logistics of that there, it's just a lot of manpower to have people running around <laughs> delivering medications in a really timely manner to for every single discharge and so that's where you've seen hospitals kind of stand up and think about implementing a meds to beds program and decide like yeah we would we would have to hire this many runners to just have those medications run around during our you know heavy discharge hours um and we're able to come in and say like well great let's you know how many you know how many discharge medications do you have that you think are going to be you know going across the hospital during this busy discharge time let's build you a a fleet of moxie robots and that's all they're doing they're coming back to pharmacy and waiting for the next discharge medication so that's been a really fun one because i think it's a strategic initiative that a lot of hospitals have had in mind for a long time and just haven't had the workforce and the manpower to make it happen. That leads me to 
when I'm listening and, and I'm thinking from the perspective of our pharmacy technicians and pharmacists, what's that? What's the feedback that you're getting from these hospital system pharmacists about the effectiveness of Moxie's impact on their daily work? Yeah, uh, we are continually hearing from uh, pharmacy leaders and pharmacists, nursing leaders and, and nurses that um, they're just thankful and able to um, get back to their real job. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you're a pharmacy tech, what you're supposed to be doing is, it, you know, being in pharma being in the pharmacy, fulfilling medic medication, uh, making uh, prescription fulfillments. And um, the more time that you can spend on that is the better. Um, pharmacy directors are you know, very excited to be able to really quantify the hours that you know, would have been taken away from their teams needing to run around the building, that they're no longer having to do that and they're able to focus on their work. Um, you know, longer term, we're looking to you know, work with some of our, our hospitals that have had pharmacy automation with Moxie live for uh, when, once we get to you know, like a year and two years, you're really thinking through some of the clinical metrics that we would be able to point to around, you know, are we are we um, really decreasing our time to fill and, you know, things that are like metrics that are really driving the performance of the pharmacy because you've got your people focused on what you need them to focus on. So back to an example that you were talking about during implementation, uh, one of your staff members guiding the uh, Moxie uh, unit, the robot through the hospital with a, kind of like you were saying, like a, a, a video game controller of sorts. That's part of the process. So how long does it actually take to install and get um, Moxie yeah. in the hospital? to implement. So there's a couple of things that happen during implementation and there's like technical things that ha we have to, you know, build a map of the environment, you know, name the different locations, set up the kind of kiosks so that people know how to call Moxie from one point to another. The technical implementation just takes, it can take as little as three weeks. Um, then the, in parallel, there's the change management piece. And so we're taking and re-envisioning a workflow uh, that was already happening in the hospital. And can we have to you know, work with the staff on both the pharmacy side and the nursing side typically to redefine that workflow. Okay, you know, nurses used to come down to pharmacy and get this, or pharmacy techs used to go to nursing units and get that. And so we work with both sides to optimize that and say, okay, now Moxie's going to do this and nurses are going to do that and pharmacy, the pharmacy is going to do this. And so that process um, is our workflow redesign and then workflow rollout. And, you know, that one can be, uh, we tend to take about a, a, you know, couple weeks of workflow design and a couple weeks of workflow training. So all in all, it's about a four week, four to five week process to, Work, design workflows, get robots on site, get them um, trained up and get the staff trained up. And then we can have a go live in about 40 days. Very cool. You know, when I think of innovation, technology, someone like yourself um, is always thinking of how to improve things as well as what's the next uh, phase of this technology. And we were talking about what may come, what features you've been asked about, but what are some of the next features rolling out um, that, that you're excited about? 
Yeah. So um, let's see, I'll mention a couple that are really going to have a lot of impact on, on pharmacy in particular. Um, we have the ability to do restricted uh, access. So there's different levels of access that we can provide to the drawers. And this is, you know, whether it just the sensitivity of medications that could be put into the drawers of Moxie is higher if you're able to have that kind of restricted access. So that's a recent feature that's come out that um, there's some medications that could be, you know, anyone with a staff badge should be able to um, open those drawers on the nursing unit and bring that to the nurse. But there's other medications that you would want. Only the nursing team is licensed to be able to open the drawer and take that medication out. And so um, we've got uh, that restricted deliveries as a feature that's rolled out where we've got two factors of authentication where you need to have both a, a nursing badge and then also be in the location of that nursing unit. So it's a location-based and a badge-based. So we've got two factors of authentication. Um, but this this year, we're going to be adding um, multi-factor authentication with uh, PIN codes and um, eventually um, biometrics. So we're excited to be doing that multi-factor authentication to be able to, you know, carry even you know, more and more sensitive things. Um, the, the the second feature that I'll mention that we're excited about this year was we're trialing. Uh, we have two different um, hospitals that are working with us to do the first examples of integrations with the electronic health records. So we're doing both an Epic and a Cerner integration. And what's exciting about that is that then you take out the need for um, a pharmacist to actually call Moxie to come and take something. So we can have more of an understanding and kind of be following along with how the medication, um, you know, the medication order comes in. We can see when it's been filled and is ready for you know, someone to come and, and transport it. And that can trigger a robot to just automatically come to the pharmacy and be waiting for that. So, um, so we're really excited about the optimization that that's going to give to our teams. Wow, that proactive um, ability tied into the click-throughs and the in the drop-downs that are inside the EHR systems that would be amazing. I know just from working with pharmacists in uh, Allegheny Health Network and here in Pittsburgh. Um, they were talking about triggers and what happens with a trigger yep. is all really workflow based, but now you're connecting robotics into these triggers. So that is really exciting. Exactly. Yeah. We, we've done some early, you know, we did some really early prototypes of this where we sort of kind of manually uh, figured out those triggers and, and had somebody send like an email to the, whenever this was, whenever it was needed. And, um, in the early feedback of what it's like to have a robot kind of automatically be triggered from the EHR, you know, people would use the word magic. It's like, oh my gosh, the robot just magically showed up when I need it to. So, um, and it, so it's actually one of our, uh, it, it, that happened about two, three years ago that we started to hear about this magic. And um, it's actually made its way into one of our core values at Diligent Robots is that we, we make real magic um, here at Diligent Robotics. <laughs> Moxie the magician uh, just shows up and does uh, intuitive, the intuitive robot. <laughs> That's great. Um, I appreciate you uh, coming on this week in pharmacy, sharing technology innovation. We're always looking for um, how 
independent um, studies are forwarding future technologies. If there's ever any white papers or blogs that you can share with our uh, with our listeners, we push a lot of this content through social media as well as our blog ourselves. I'd like to do a special follow up with you um, later in the year to see where you're going to be at. And um, uh, December is one of the largest conferences in hospitals hospital system pharmacy called the ASHP, the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. I believe that's called the Mid-Year. Uh, will you be at that event? We are making arrangements to, to have a presence there. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been um, a treat for us and our listeners, I'm sure. Um, once again, uh, check out diligentrobots.com. That's diligentrobots.com. And look out for Moxie. And then you have videos on YouTube as well, which if you just search Diligent Robots or Diligent Robots Moxie, you'll absolutely find those videos. Andrea uh, Tomas, this has been uh, wonderful to talk with you. And like I said, we got to have you back on This Week in Pharmacy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great. Hey, that was fun. Learning about uh, how uh, robots will actually continue to advance. I mean, I have an imagination of where this could all go, but um, to make it that effective and to work with the hospital systems, and that's exciting. So we have a, an entire technology dedication to you today in today's episode. Uh, we're going to be listening to an interview about digital health and how that is tied into the rest of our healthcare ecosystem driven by pharmacists. But before that, I want you guys to listen to Darshan Korkarni, who does an amazing podcast called Darshan Talks. He's been part of our network for years. I want to say more than six, seven years. He is now a correspondent for This Week in Pharmacy, so he'll always participate in giving his insights. Let's hear from Darshan now. To this week's episode of Darshan Talks on This Week in Pharmacy. This week, we'll be zoning in on a critical battlefront in the pharmacy world fighting back against pharmacy benefit managers. In recent time times, we've seen notable chains like Rite Aid and CVS closing stores, a move that signals the intense pressure the industry is under. Independent pharmacists, the heart and soul of the community pharmacy model, are feeling the squeeze even more acutely. They're battling not just with the operational challenges of running a pharmacy, but with navigating the complex web of PBM policies and reimbursements. It's an uphill battle. So let's start with the beginning. Who are PBMs? So PBMs play a significant role in the pharmaceutical and pharmacy industries. And they act as an intermediary between insurers and other members of the healthcare system. They have substantial influence on which drugs are covered by insurance plans and at what cost. However, their practices have come under recent scrutiny with many of them being accused of contributing to the challenges independent pharmacies face. This includes burnout, and financial pressures. The FTC is already looking into this issue. Having said that, there are many problems and many criticisms levied against these PBMs. One of them is the lack of transparency. Pharmacists frequently find themselves at a disadvantage, unable to determine how reimbursement rates are being calculated or whether certain medications are preferred over others. This opacity can lead to situations where pharmacies are reimbursed below the cost of acquiring and dispensing medications. This threatens viability and the ability to serve their communities. Then there's the use of direct and indirect remuneration. These DIR fees have been added and they've they sort of added this additional layer of complexity and financial burden on pharmacies. 
these fees assessed by PBMs long after the point of sale can make it incredibly challenging for pharmacies to predict the revenue streams and manage their finances effectively. So, so what can pharmacists do to fight back and navigate these turbulent waters? First of all, knowledge is power. Understand the contracts you have with PBMs. Know what you're agreeing to. What do the reimbursement rates allow for? How are disputes handled? And it's not just about signing on the dotted line. It's not just about being part of their network. It's about negotiating terms that are fair and sustainable for your pharmacy. I've worked with clients who signed, uh, signed at that bottom line. They worked with the PBMs only to find out that when they actually needed the help the most, the PBMs were not there to help. Next, advocacy and legislation. There's a growing movement amongst pharmacists to push for more transparent and fair practices from PBMs. Joining these professional organizations lobbying for state and local state, local, and federal regulations can make a huge difference. Some states have already introduced laws to regulate PBM practices, aiming to ensure more fairness in the system. So what's another strategy? Diversification. So don't put all your eggs in the PBM basket. Look for other ways to diversify your revenue streams. This can mean additional offerings like immunizations, uh, health screenings, wellness programs. Create value that PBMs cannot undermine and that patients can't get from giant, ch giant chains or online giants. So collaboration is also key. Independent pharmacies often feel like they're on an island, but there's strength in numbers. Forming, forming or joining networks and cooperatives can enhance your bargaining power with PBMs and suppliers. It's about creating a united front to negotiate better deals and share resources. Now, let's not forget about technology. Utilize the, the latest in pharmacy management software. This will streamline your operations, but also, and more importantly, provide the data to better negotiate with PBMs. You need to have data on drug pricing, patient adherence, pharmacy performance, all of which will help you negotiate better than this customer service. In the end, I've worked in a pharmacy, you've worked in the pharmacy, the heart of pharmacy is patient care. Excelling in personalized service, building relationships with your patients, and providing care that goes beyond just filling a prescription sets you apart. When patients choose your pharmacy because of the quality of care, it sends a message to PBMs and insurers about your value. So again, it's clear that understanding the legal and regulatory framework governing PBMs is crucial. Discovering and using alternatives comes with a slew of regulatory and compliance challenges. And here's where having uh, advocacy and legal knowledge can come into play. Reach out to me, Darshan Kulkarni, at the Kulkarni Law Firm. I have over 20 years of experience as a pharmacist, over 20 years of experience in food and drug law, so I'm uniquely positioned to help pharmacists and pharmacy owners. So I can help provide strategic advice and legal representation when needed to challenge unfair PBM practices. I can help you negotiate better terms and ensure compliance with the ever-changing regulatory landscape. In conclusion, when the challenges posed by PBMs are, are significant, they aren't insurmountable, but having the right knowledge, strategies, and legal support, pharmacists can help. Pharmacists can be helped in protecting their interests, and you can continue to serve the vital role of delivering healthcare in your community. Thank you for tuning into Darshan Talks. Remember, the face of challenges, knowledge is power, and legal expertise is your shield. Please reach out to me, Darshan Kulkarni, at 302-252-6959. Or you can reach me via email at darshan at kulkarnilawfirm.com. I'm hoping to hear from you. I'm hoping to be able to help you.
This episode is sponsored by Independent Pharmacy Cooperative, widely known as IPC. Established in 1983, IPC is the nation's largest group purchasing organization owned by Independent Pharmacy. With a mission of maximizing the success of community pharmacists, IPC works to provide members with access to effective programs and services designed to enhance profitability for independent pharmacy. Read more about our mission by checking out our website at IPCRX.com. That's IPCRX.com. Hey, and on this week in pharmacy, we are talking digital health. I love technology. It's where I started in pharmacy. I think that technology in the hands of our pharmacist is a game changer. I've seen this over the years from pharmacy management systems that evolved from character-based systems to SQL. And what does that mean? Well, access to information. Back in the day, I don't have to tell you this, uh, pharmacists that have been around the block um, as long as uh, I have and, and more. Remember when the only thing you could do with a pharmacy management system was access it, um, maybe do, I mean, before that, people were doing prescriptions uh, on typewriters. Um, and then, of course, word processors and then the closed system where you had the character based system that really couldn't share information. Fast forward to today. Technology is fascinating. And now the birth of artificial intelligence uh, to help accelerate uh, decision processing and treatment plans, how uh, we're going to have texting uh, happening from AI bots in the background are going to be asking questions of our patients, collecting information giving it back to the physician and the EHR, uh, making some recommendations on next steps. Pharmacists are deep in this. Uh, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has invested heavily into finding the champions. I do want to give a shout out to Simi Byrne. Dr. Simi Byrne is the new host of Digital Therapeutics, And we're so excited that she is going to lead the way for us on our network and really going out and finding the gem stories, going out and finding the stories of how digital therapeutics, how AI, how technology is impacting patient care. The person that I'm about to introduce you to, some of you have never heard of um, this champion, healthcare champion through public publishing, uh, through content development. There's others that absolutely have heard of uh, Taja Zykes. Um, she is a champion um, uh, for patient health through her documentation, through her coverage, um, I am pleased. I am honored to finally have her on This Week in Pharmacy after a very long wait. Taja Zykes, welcome to This Week in Pharmacy. Thanks for having me, Todd, and thank you for the kind words. I'm just so impressed with what you've built. Uh, Faces of Digital Health has been a go-to for me in, in a publication that gives me a podcast, which I, I consume so much information through podcasts, but basis of digital health and, and how much of a wide stance that you've taken, the champions that you brought to your program um, right out of the gate. Um, there's my digital health godfather on your website. Um, I met John Nasta, which was my intro into uh, digital health, I want to say almost seven or eight years ago, um, and really defining what that meant. So you have a lot of amazing people that come on your show. I want you uh, to talk to our listeners, our pharmacists out there. Tell me about yourself and how you got into this. Um, so I'm a journalist by background. Uh, and I have a 
potentially interesting story about podcasting that I usually don't share. But the reason that I actually started podcasting is because in 2016, my partner and I, we hiked the Continental Divide Trail in the US. So that's the trail that goes from the Mexico border to the Canadian border. It takes half a year to just, you know, walk through it. And obviously, uh, while you do the, all that walking in the uh, wilderness, you have to do something. And the best thing to do is to listen to podcasts. So I listened to a lot of different podcasts in 2016. And my job at that time was, apart from journalist, to also work as a business, um, audience developer for the company that I worked at at the time. So after I came back from the trail, I had quite a few ideas about how we could do podcasts. And uh, we did one for the finance daily newspaper. And I started another one, international one, on healthcare digitalization. It was called uh, Medicine Today on Digital Health at the time. Uh, and then I renamed it to Faces of Digital Health in 2017. And I tried to cover how different healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. Uh, so I talk to policymakers. I look at the accessibility of healthcare, the structure of healthcare system. Uh, healthcare challenges and obviously uh, the impact of technology. And in 2021, uh, this is something that might be more interesting for the audience, uh, is uh, I did a documentary about how can we prevent medication errors. And I spoke with uh, 15 people. Uh, patients, nurses, pharmacists, and clinicians, and entrepreneurs around um, why medication errors happen, uh, what is the um, complexity of the hospital environment that contributes uh, to the errors, what are the approaches that we can uh, take to prevent these errors and uh, patient harm. So that's still uh, available on YouTube. And we also had like a dedicated uh, panel discussion after that uh, documentary at the premiere with additional five um, experts from, again, different countries. So um, yeah, that was, you know, 15 uh, speakers from 10 different countries to figure out that basically medication uh, safety is a global challenge that we should raise awareness about. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've worked with OmniCell before. They were on our network for about two or three years, um, always focused on safety and hospital systems. That series was specific to the hospital setting or did it fall outside of the hospital setting and start to touch um, ambulatory and, of course, follow-up care through community pharmacy. So it was uh, it was limited to hospitals, um, just because, um, yeah, it, the the whole space and the complexity of medication uh, management is so vast. You know, um, a lot of challenges and a lot of errors happen in the 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 hospitals, like. Um, in many, I mean, that's not the case in the US, but like in many countries, many things are still on paper. When you have things on paper, you have eligibility issues, you've got 10 times overdoses, you've got mixed drugs, you've got, mix, you have mixed doses, uh, missed doses, because, you know, patient charts can be found and we could go on and on and on. Wrong uh, patient gets the wrong drug or the wrong dose or the medication is given through the wrong route. So, so I really wanted to explain, you know, uh, 
the complexity about, around that and also the technologies that are trying to support that. And we've got clinical decision support systems. We've got uh, word cabinets and uh, pharmacy robots that can all be integrated together to enable closed loop prescribing also through barcoding where you actually check that you have the right patient by checking the patient's barcode and then checking the barcode on the medication to make sure that uh, you don't give the wrong drug to the wrong uh, patient. The point of that movie wasn't really in trying to figure out whose fault is it, but to really just uh, create the clarity around the complexity of the issue. Because I, I, I hope that everyone understands that the hospital environment is really complex. It's very stressful. Yep. Everybody's doing their best and mistakes happen. They will keep happening, but we can do a lot to uh, mitigate the risks and to reduce patient harm if we use uh, technology. I agree. I agree. So talk to me about um, faces of digital health. I'm impressed with your content. It's very diverse. Um, you have um, blogs that you're putting out that you're doing uh, really deep um, writings in and, and you get very specific into some some of the subjects. You're also doing some collaborations with organizations. Um, I follow you when you go to um, events like HLTH Health, um, where actually you'll be going um, in Europe, uh, HLTH uh, Health uh, Europe coming up after you hit um, HIMSS uh, Europe, which is exciting. So talk to me about content. What, what, what drives you to cover specific issues um, in, in healthcare and the tie back to technology? Mm -hmm. So there's basically two things. One is that I try to be on top of the latest technology and to explain how it works, what are the challenges. So, for example, last year I did quite a few um, episodes on generative AI. You can also check uh, the link that I uh, sent you in the chat that goes to the newsletter, which is uh, uh, around one and a half year old. And the blog is just basically a list of all the episodes with a bit of information about each episode and speaker, whereas the newsletter only comes out uh, roughly once a month and um, includes like in-depth articles about a specific um, topic. So... Um, you can get uh, literally a crash course on generative AI to give mm. you a better understanding of what it is, how it works, what are the current uh, challenges. Um, and so covering the latest technology is uh, one thing. I think the technological advancements are happening so fast that it's really, really hard to understand, you know, how things work. And if you don't understand how things work, it's easy to get confused around the potential of this. So my mission is to bring clarity, to bring understanding, to basically teach people about how things work. That's one thing. And then the second thing is focus on the healthcare systems. Um, I'm a chronic patient. So when I started diving into healthcare and when I started podcasting, my kind of curiosity stemmed from the fact that I, I thought, well, you know, if I ever wanted to travel and with my chronic issues, what would that mean for me? How good are the healthcare systems in the different countries that I would visit? What would that mean in terms of cost, in terms of health insurance? And that kind of uh, encouraged me to research healthcare systems. Systems. Um, so I like to do 
different series around that. I did a series about healthcare innovation in Africa. Last year, I did uh, a series about the APEC region. This year, I really want to cover uh, the BRICS countries and give a little bit more focus on India, which I know has a lot of things uh, going on. I just haven't had the time to, to research that. I'm also currently planning an episode on digital uh, therapeutics, uh, especially in Europe, because uh, after uh, the German um, overview or uh, framework that they designed for the approval and management of digital therapeutics, France is the next one. But actually, Belgium also uh, has had a framework since I think 2019. So I think these are the three countries in Europe that are the strongest. I know that Spain is also planning something. So it's going to be good to know uh, where we are with that. Unfortunately, and this is a general challenge in Europe, um, and it's also visible here, the rules or regulations are very uh, national, which means that um, startups or companies are faced with the challenge of um, kind of localizing even their um, proof. So, you know, if you did your research on uh, German patients, you then somehow need to prove that this is the same for French patients or for Belgian patients and things like that. So, yeah, to, um, make sure to just uh, follow the, the show to see when that is going to come out. Absolutely. Where is home for you? I know you travel a lot, but where's home? I'm based in Ljubljana, Slovenia, a small country with 2 million people, which is a good thing from the digital health perspective because we have a really, really good national uh, infrastructure. So all the healthcare providers are connected to the national backbone. We've got the patient portal where you as a patient can see your electronic prescriptions. So for example, I can see how many times uh, I can still go to the pharmacy to pick up my meds before I need a repeat prescription from my doctor. I can see my referral letters. I can see uh, which uh, healthcare providers are providing a specific service if I need to see a specialist. Uh, you've got discharge letters, lab results, um, and a really nice timeline that shows you when your next medical appointments are coming up. And uh, in the next upgrade of the portal, uh, the plan is to also enable uh, patient-doctor communication. And what else? Yeah, that's the, I, th that, I think that's kind of the main one uh, that I can think of right now. But it's a great thing because, you know, like larger con um, countries uh, tend to not have that. And I'm talking about France and Germany, which are in the early stages of establishing uh, that. Um, but yeah, I recently did um, a bit of a survey and was re researching which countries in Europe already have these patient, por uh, patient portals. And uh, many of them do. You know, I can I know that uh, Poland does. Croatia, Greece, um, so quite uh, a lot of uh, good examples of good uh, practice in terms of how patients can access data, uh, even if they go to different healthcare providers. Let's talk about digital therapeutics specifically for just a second. And the reason is, is like I said in the opening, we're going to be dedicating some time and resources through Dr. Simi Byrne um, to really lead our digital therapy talks. We call it digital therapy mm -hmm. talks. So you are uh, one of five people um, I pick um, 
I pick United States-based providers, and then I pick our global providers. And you are one of those five that I want um, Dr. Byrne to definitely tap into. Um, so listeners, you will be hearing from Taja at another podcast uh, on the network uh, in the future uh, when we get you scheduled. But let's do a compare and contrast. Why is it so hard right now that the United States uh, fascination, I should say, with digital therapeutics really heated up um, about three years ago? And now it's cooling down because of the reimbursement, because of being able to get these technologies paid. And it's as if the organizations that are making the determinations of value and the evidence-based driven data that comes through it and the collection of data, they're almost making it that they're starting at a, um, uh, a lower level of understanding that we've already prefaced, we've already packed full of knowledge. And now they're saying, oh, we have to make sure that they're FDA cleared, which is understandable um, in order to get them paid for. But we've really slowed down in in the progression. I know it's going to happen. It's just a stall. So everybody, I think of our friends at Click Therapeutics who are doing some amazing uh, technology development around COPD and addiction and um, um, mental health uh, monitoring through digital therapeutics. What is the contrast between the United States and you could really say the rest of the world in the adoption of digital therapeutics from your from your understanding? I would say that actually there isn't that much uh, difference. So basically Germany was lucky that they had a really, really uh, stubborn and fearless healthcare minister that said, even if everybody is against it, uh, this we're going to set a framework for digital therapeutics and he pulled that off. So uh, that's how the framework got set up uh, in Germany. It basically enables companies companies uh, to get go through a regulatory process, get registered and get into the national database of digital therapeutics. The problem with digital therapeutics that's global is that <clears throat> in terms of regulation, we pretty much have the same expectations in terms of proof or very similar expectations in terms of proof that we have around medications, which means that uh, clinical trials, uh, heart uh, proof, um, then, you know, this whole regulatory process that you need to go uh, through. All this is really, really time consuming and really expensive. And pharma companies uh, can afford to go through this process, but it's much, much more difficult for uh, healthcare uh, startups. And what's even more difficult for them is to then invest large amounts of effort and money into advertising of those solutions. So on the one hand, you have a solution that gets um, uh, approved, that's out there, but you still have the trust gap between the solution, the patients and the doctors, you know, because doctors would need to be educated around all these solutions that are out there so they they could make informed decisions if patients ask them about these apps. And usually they don't really have time uh, to do that. And you you don't have digital health sales rep that would, you know, run around uh, clinicians to make sure that, you know, they understand exactly what the value proposition of a specific DTX is. And then... um, 
yeah, the second thing that I heard doctors complaining about is that um, a lot of digital therapeutics are just an add-on to the existing therapy, mm -hmm. so they don't really replace uh, the um, pharmacological um, therapy that one might also take. And that is a problem for insurance companies that then do not want to put a high price tag um, on these solutions. So the challenge that happened for many companies in Germany was that they set their price, but that price was uh, re-evaluated after a year and the insurance companies really decreased the, the, the price they were willing to pay for those solutions, which was just that that sentence to some of the companies now france is trying to mitigate that through predefined um kind of classes that you might fall into as a dtx so you can have at least an idea of what you can expect in terms of uh, reimbursement so we will still see how this whole story unfolds it's going to be around a year, I think, sl uh, slowly since France uh, went on this uh, journey. And I will definitely do some research on how they're doing because one thing that they also did is basically do a, a national research on digital literacy to also realize what uh, healthcare differences are in different regions. And they realized that they really need to in invest in uh, workforce upskilling in uh, digital transformation. So these are all really, really crucial steps when we're talking about uh, digital transformation and the use of new technologies. And one thing that I also think is very interesting to mention in this case is the uh, accessibility of these solutions that is very limited to larger markets because of business reasons. So for example, in the US, even if you don't have reimbursement codes, but you have solutions that uh, have proven uh, efficacy, you can get them. Me, as someone coming from a country with 2 million people and a weird language, mm. like companies just won't, won't even bother uh, trying to get on this market. So as a patient, uh, as a patient advocate, that's one of the, the bigger pains um, that I have. And uh, one thing that was also recently mentioned to me is that a lot of um, countries that don't have, you know, DTX frameworks just yet, when you think about it from the policymaker or political point of view, as you know, there's so many problems in healthcare, there's strikes yeah. all over the place. DTX is probably on 10th place on your to-do list. So you don't even get to that point because there's so many other pressing issues that you want to cover. It's very true. I think of an article that I read on Osborne Clark, um, osborneclark.com for uh, listeners that aren't following along on our visuals and our uh, YouTube show uh, this week in pharmacy. And they're classified as you were saying, uh, Taja, the two different types of DTX, the standalone, which is, hey, this is the therapy. This is part of the um, the rollout. We're going to collect the data and be able to make determinations of efficacy as well as um, evidence-based follow-up. And then our plug-in, that is, um, hey, this is accompanying um, some type of medication. Um, I think my, my, my um, imagination starts going crazy. There's a company called eTechRx 
that I know very well. I actually uh, used to work with Harry Travis when he was the CEO of eTechDRX, and it is a digestible, um, ingestible, um, not digestible, ingestible um, capsule that you fill with a medication, and then there's nodes inside the capsule that will tell you um, the disintegration, the digestion, uh, how fast it's 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 there, how fast it's got to your your stomach and where it needs to go. And the future of that technology could become uh, huge. That's obviously a great example of a plugin um, that accompanies uh, you know some kind of medication. What what of the two do you think is is, is going to become universal where we can say, hey, for this, have you ever seen a disease state, for example, Taja, that you're like, this is the one, like uh, COPD or, um, uh, you know, obviously in the respiratory world, but maybe it's mental health, maybe it's addiction. Have you ever seen any um, DTX uh, make a make a, a closer reach to where we need to be in order to be full-scale use? The challenge that I see, you know, in all these approaches is that if you go, if you undergo a meditation treatment that can have proven effects, you know, on depression, on mental health, it requires a lot of effort. So on the one hand, basically you're choosing with an instant solution that solves your problem, that's a drug, and digital solutions that are basically in some cases saying you will have to, you know, put a lot of effort, but in the long run, this is going to work for you. Not everybody has the um, grit or the motivation um, to to grow to go through that long period to to actually um, see some results. So, from that perspective, what I'm very excited about is VR in mental health. Mm -hmm. It's not a new thing. It's actually been, you know, in development for the last 20 years. There's a lot of data, a lot of research that's already uh, proven the, the impact of VR on, on mental health. Um, so that would be my pick for the most exciting one. And I still need to get my VR headset to, um, yeah, feel even better. <laughs> A call out to any of the organizations out there. Taja could be your test and then she could write you a beautiful piece and a podcast on it too. So there I'm selling for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can do a review. It will be, um, how can I say, independent in a sense that I would say what I think, but <laughs> would totally be up for a test. Absolutely. Yeah, the the usage of virtual reality and in mental health. Um, I've seen examples of some of the presentations designed to calm you or feel less stressed, declutter your mind. Um, uh, lots of effort to uh, use uh, technology to get uh, responses back to clinicians and our psychiatrists and our physicians and obviously pharmacists uh, with with outcomes and and questioning and involving. Uh, responses from from people uh, using the tech. I want to meet up with you at some conference. I know it might not be soon since you're going to be uh, in the Europe uh, European conferences coming up. Um, I'm going to be headed to HLTH, I think, in the fall, in October. Mm -hmm. um, so are you going to be at uh, Health uh, US uh, in October? Uh, we'll see. I will be in Boston uh, in October. So that is definitely something I will uh, do for a digital health and AI 
conference. So keep that uh, in mind. Well, if you're listening, please, you, you will not be disappointed. Um, facesofdigitalhealth.com. Once again, that's facesofdigitalhealth.com. Wonderful podcast. Um, it's it, it's just well thought out, high quality. Your guests are uh, just wonderful. Uh, latest um, episode was how do pharma and digital health coverage, um, how do pharma and digital health cover, uh, converge in 2024? And um and I actually listened to that, I believe, was it last week? I can't remember when I listened to it, but um, I listened to yours. It's on my list of podcasts for sure and um, really enjoy your content a lot. Thank you. All right. So you pick the topic next. I'm going to come to Faces of Digital Health. We're going to bring some pharmacists with us because I'd really like to dig into some specific conditions that um, also are connected to technology and connected to digital health. So um, you'll have uh, listeners, you'll have to uh, stand by. And if you're a pharmacist that loves technology and loves digital health, please reach out to us at publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. That's once again, my email publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. Taja, this has been wonderful. Finally, we get you on, um, the pharmacy podcast and, um, this week in pharmacy. So we much appreciate you. I appreciate the time and listening thought and uh, well, let's do this again. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you.